Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, October 8th, and we're dipping into the mailbag. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Jason Hall. Jason, how's it going? Happy Friday, my friend. I am ready to answer some questions from our from our viewers. Isn't it the best when, it really when, is. when people write in and, and they're like, hey, I'm interested in this? Because uh, there are things that I think we are dying to talk about sometimes, but we don't necessarily know that will be interesting to our listeners uh, or, or to our members. And so for people to say, hey, I want to hear about this, especially some of the wonkier stuff that we're going to get into on today's show, I always think it's such a treat. Be, be warned, sometimes you can lead us down the rabbit hole, friends. That's <laughs> that's the thing. But that's half the fun. That's half the fun. Oh, man. it's When I when I really go down there and I look up and I'm like, oh, I've been staring at my phone for 30 minutes. Uh, it's, it's, it's humbling. Technology has a way of creeping in. Um, we, we are going to be talking through uh, three different topics on today's show. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, price targets. We're going to be talking about payment for order flow. Uh, and then we're also going to be talking about ways to get started as a tech investor. All of these coming directly from our listeners. And I have to put the plug out there. If you ever have something that you want us to be talking about on the show, industryfocus at fool.com, at MF Industry Focus on Twitter. We love getting those ideas. Uh, Jason, this first one comes from Heidi. Uh, Heidi asks, uh, I've noticed that The Motley Fool does not talk much about price targets, but I'm hoping you can answer a question I have about them. Sometimes an analyst will give a price target that is much higher than the current price, uh, but the stock is rated as a hold. On the other hand, sometimes a price target is the same or lower, and they rate a stock as a buy. Can you please help make sense of this for me? Uh, I, I think maybe we should just start with the price target definition, what it is. Because I know for the most part, people are going to be following along and, and know, but I don't want to leave anybody behind here, Jason. Yeah, it's a good idea. So, I mean, when we're talking about a price target, we're generally talking about an analyst publishing an opinion on where a stock will be 12 months from now. And these and, are sell-side analysts too, right? So you read on Yahoo Finance or one of these other ticker feed sites, or you hear on CNBC or something, and they say, Wall Street analysts price target, they're talking about sell-side analysts. Go ahead. And, and so this is kind of published research that works its way into the financial media. Often this is going out to a client base uh, or something like that, uh, but works its way into articles. And, and you know, we have coverage on fool.com that's, that's working its way, uh, you know, into this as well and, and talking about these topics, Jason. Right, right. And a lot of times we're generally kind of hitting on what the analysts are saying to try to put a foolish take on it, mm -hmm. right? To, to, to give the more holistic whole picture of it, right? Yeah. And, and I think where... Um, I want to hone in on, on the question and, and then the definition here that I think will be telling and why we don't spend a lot of time specifically focusing on this is, for the most part, these targets are 12-month targets. And we're looking at specific numbers that are coming from analysts. Um, and you know, most of the folks that follow along with The Fool know we're, we're looking at companies with a 5-10 year horizon. So just you know, from, off the bat, the, the, the timeline that we're looking at these companies is going to be a little bit different than the nature of the analyst price targets. It is, and it's telling if you just look at the accuracy, right? And there, there are some different websites out there and some data um, that folks have looked at. In terms of ge in general accuracy, you can flip a coin and you're going to be about as accurate as the, as, the, as the directionality or even being within a few percentage points of the price target. So, But the, the bottom line is that 
those price targets aren't really their job, right? Their, their job is more about access and providing. They they publish these things in a very real way to create awareness, right? And to create increase access. And a big part of their job, right, is just providing the the research reports themselves to the firm's clients, so they can sell more things to their clients. You're not paying for it. You have to, you know, you get what you pay for with these. <laughs> and and I think also, you know, if if you want to take a critical view of them, they are in some ways uh, promotional tools. For, oh, very much so. for, yeah, for the analyst so. right. and, and and for the firm. Um, you know, and so it, it is not surprising for an analyst to put a big splashy number out there, especially for a highly followed stock. Uh, there, there for years seemed to be this arms race for who could put out the highest price target on a company like Apple. Um, and yeah, to your point earlier, there's there's very little accountability with the follow on for that. Uh, and so, you know, what, what I would say to Heidi and, and to our listeners and members is um, there is, I think, utility in looking at those reports. What I would tend to focus on more is the why of that price target. Right, the, the words, not the numbers. Exactly. The catalysts that they're identifying or the headwinds that they're identifying that lead to that price target. Because I think if you anchor to the number, it's really false precision. It, it really is. The other thing, too, is that, I mean, you know, we talked about the, the, the general lack of accuracy, right? That it's, it's, but the other thing is they do move the market, right? I think that's one of the reasons people pay attention to them is that there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the short term. If somebody lowers their price, right, or they initiate coverage at a, at a price below, the stock tends to move with that within in a day or two, right? But then you, over the quarter or over the year, it tends to deviate, right? So that's the thing. So you focus, like you said, Dylan, what are they saying? Does this match up with my thesis? Does it potentially disprove my thesis about the company? And apply it to the total available information that you use when you make a decision about investing in a company. Yeah, and they could be super helpful in identifying blind spots that you have, or just kind Absolutely. of broadening your perspective on a business. And I think that's you know what we'll come back to looking at news items in general, or you know getting opinions from other people in general. Is it's always better to have a more built out, more robust understanding of the companies that you're looking at. Um, what one other thing that I think that the price target element um, kind of highlights some of the ways that that foolish investing is a little bit different than the way that a lot of the market tends to look at companies is. Uh, to bring it into you know our, our premium ecosystem a little bit, Jason, um, a lot of places will publish a recommendation or publish specific guidance with an entry point or an exit point in mind for that position, um, and you don't see that with our with our premium newsletters or with our premium products. That's not the way that we approach investing. Yeah, and sometimes I think it gives people a little bit of a false impression that that valuation doesn't matter. Um, because it certainly does. Uh, but the fact that we don't talk so much about price or valuation, it makes it seem like sometimes, particularly on the on, in the premium side, that we just we don't follow it all. And that's not the case, right? It's 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 kind of the last thing that we tend to look at, right? We start with, okay, is this is this a really interesting area, right? Whatever this business does, right? Is this a really good business in that? Are they disrupting something else? Are they creating something new? Okay. Are they growing the revenues, right? You find that revenue number, right? So you think about the things that really lead to success in investing. It starts with revenue growth. The companies that grow the revenues at high rates are far more likely to be market-beating stocks, right? Valuation, throw that out the window. They're far more likely to be market-beating stocks. So then you start understanding the economics of the business. Do they have really high gross margins and low fixed costs? So their incremental margins are really high, which means that the valuation that looks insane today 
if they continue to grow, all of a sudden the valuation story completely changes because their cash flows are really good. And then we look at cash flows, right? Instead of PE ratio or PS ratio and all that stuff. And the story tells us, and then at the very end, we say, okay, well, what is the valuation today? And can I project that out over three, five, 10 years to get to a point where I think this stock can grow and this business get bigger and be a market beating investment over time, right? So you see how the valuation kind of happens at the very end there. And that's backwards for the way that a lot of people invest or a lot of people look at the market. And I think part of the reason why that philosophy exists at The Fool is we know to some extent if, if we're off on the valuation part now by call it 10, 20, even 30%, but it grows into the innovative business, the compounder that we think it might be, we're willing to accept that because we know the upside is multi-bagger returns and the price you pay only really matters so much. I don't want to pile on value investors, but the bottom line is that the value invest, the value investing approach where you start by looking for cheap valuations, right? So you start there with a bucket of valuations, and then you figure out the companies that fit within that valuation that you want to buy that you think you can generate returns has not done well for the better part of 20 years, right? Particularly over the past dozen years or so, it has not worked, right? And I think part of that reason is we've seen such a dynamic shift in the business world. You think about software, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but how software is driving so many things in so many different ways that the businesses that look like they have great valuations are the ones that have these traditional economics that don't generate these above average margins, these above average cash flows, and their valuation is just kind of what it is, right? So it leads you into the false trap of looking for value, and you're just buying mediocre businesses. Jason, you teed me up perfectly for the second question that we're going to hit. Uh, this pay one, me later. <laughs> this one comes from Martin. Uh, Martin asks, uh, you mentioned the article, Why Software is Eating the World, as part of the Tech Investor Starter Kit. Uh, what else would you include in the Tech Investor Starter Kit? And Jason, I think this was a show that you and I did together mm-hmm. that this came up on, right? Yep, it was. Um, and so this is uh, the, the classic um, Mark Andreessen column. Uh, that I was basically like internet lore at this point um, in in how forward thinking it was and, and how true it was. And it really speaks to that exact dynamic you were just talking about before, Jason, where what we have seen with these software businesses is incredible scale. Um, financials that defy a lot of conventional valuation metrics and have forced a lot of people to really uh, reapproach how they look at losses they're willing to accept, margins that they are increasingly more and more attracted to, uh, et cetera. And so if, if you're not someone who's read that yet, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, that said, it, it is not the only good primer, I think, for investing in the space. We, we can talk about a couple different sources here. Um, why, don't, why don't we kick it off first with, with just a couple books that make for, for great primer material? Yeah, I'm actually, this is, this is a little bit of a gratuitous self-promotion. Uh, David and Tom Gardner, Gardner's book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers. This book is 21 years old, Dylan. I want to say that. But I think at the end of the day, it's not just about tech investing, but it's about high growth. And which in a very real way typically means a lot of uh, a lot in, in, in tech. Uh, but it's just a really good book that talks about disruption. And it talks about companies going through like their growth these different stages of growth. And it talks about 
like the investing philosophy that David and Tom Gardner have developed. Uh, and I think it's just a really informative, helpful tool, because if you look at, at David and Tom's record over the past 25 years, it's self-evident, right? That it's a system, it's a process, it's a, it's a uh, methodology that, that absolutely, absolutely works. And I think it's a, a useful, a useful, uh, <clears throat> a useful book, even though it is, you know, 20 years old at this point, 21 years old, I think is a really good book to read. And it's a great, it's, it's, it's fun. There's, there's a great quote about, uh, reading a book where, you know, it basically allows you to borrow someone's brain for a little while there you go. And, yep. and spend some time there. And I think that that's going to be the theme of all of the different sources of, you know, a kind of tech investor starter kit, uh, type material that we cite here. Um, there, there are some other kind of classic investing books that, that I'll throw on this list. Uh, innovators dilemma, Clayton Christensen being one, um, uh, zero to one Peter Thiel being another, just a, a fantastic, uh, Tech investor, I, I think it's hard to argue with Peter Thiel's track record. Uh, you know, when it comes one with- of the one <laughs> of the two or three best tech investors in history, right? Yeah, so. and just someone who has remarkably been in the right place at the right time so many times that you, you can't call it luck. You know, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and I'll say for you know, um, you mentioned the innovator's dilemma. I would say any book Clayton Christensen has has written, uh, and he's written about a half a dozen books. Um, that talk about innovation or disruption, and probably the bigger part of that is change management, right? And and innovation, and that's one of the most difficult things for businesses to manage through. And it's one of the reasons that very successful companies eventually fail or struggle or get disrupted is because they run into that innovator's dilemma of figuring out how to change, right? How to kill off there's best success, right? How to cannibalize their own business. Microsoft, right? This is a company that struggled with that for a very, very long time. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that you can basically chart the period that they resisted in, uh, innovating themselves or disrupting themselves with them being a flat company. Uh, and and once they decide to make that decision and, and kind of open up some other business segments, whew, off to the races, it's been one of the best uh, you know, mega tech stocks to own of the past, what, eight years? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's absolutely absolutely incredible. Anybody that that bought it at the highs in you know two thousand and managed to hold through all this period has still done incredibly well. But anybody that decided to buy it in the early two thousands for that kind of they call it kind of the lost decade has done enormously well with this company that our our colleague um, <clears throat> Tim Byers says is the best best run tech company in the world. So, and and I think uh, it would be a mistake to not say that. You can also, in addition to these specific uh, books and, and, and podcasts and uh, things that we're, we're going to be citing here, look at specific companies as great opportunities for learning. Um, I, I have, I think, on four dozen times uh, on the show talked about why Apple is probably one of the best companies you can buy as an investor to learn. Um, and I think Microsoft is probably in that bucket too, where um, if you're going to make that you know, first purchase of, of, of a company and you're, you're dipping your toe into the market as a new investor, you want to do it, uh, you know, with the intent of learning. And there's no way to learn better than to learn from the best and to, you know, pay tuition rather than, uh, and, and hopefully have that tuition grow by buying quality businesses uh, rather than have it be an expense for you. Um, I have found, you know, just in Apple's case, understanding the importance of software and expanding margins, the importance of ecosystem, um, the, the importance of a gated community and finding ways for large businesses to continue to grow for it to be a remarkable resource uh, and following along with the conference calls and all that kind of stuff um, in just 
better understanding what other companies are trying to aspire to do. I think the key too, I want to stress this, Dylan, about your point, it's not buying the stock and then watching the ticker every day to see if it's moved up or moved down, but it's buying the business and thinking about it like a business owner as if you invested in a local business in your town where then you get actively involved, right? And it's the same way with Microsoft, right? How do you get actively involved? You read their AKs, right? When they announce a press release that talk about some new service that they, or new software they've developed. You read their quarterly earnings filings. You read the transcripts. Listen to the calls if you can. Let me tell you, Satya Nadella is, he's not an open book per se, but he's so thoughtful and he talks specifically and also broadly in a way about where the industry is moving and where Microsoft is moving, that you will learn a tremendous amount about technology and about software companies. Just just reading the earnings transcripts. And with the uh, earnings transcripts, you have the added benefit of seeing the questions that analysts that follow that company are asking and the areas that they're focusing on. And and sometimes it's because they're trying to punch a number into their model and understand you know uh, what it translates to. Uh, but often it's looking at the major tailwinds for those businesses. And you know I think it's it's another nice way to kind of borrow someone's brain. Um, the the last thing I'll throw out there, Jason, in this zone is. Um, if you're specifically interested in, in the cloud and, and really in software, I would highly, highly, highly recommend Jamin Ball's Substack, uh, Clouded Judgment. Um, if there is a prospectus on a software company, you can guarantee he's going to do an overview of it and put the numbers from that company into the broader industry context. And I think um, it's it's a great resource if you're looking specifically at companies in that zone uh, because he does the work on the industry analysis. He has it all aggregated for you and can contextualize it well. But also he's got a framework for how he looks at companies and breaks it down and uses it every single time. And so, you know, similar to the analyst ask, asking the questions on a conference call, you can see the categories that he breaks his overviews down into. And it's very helpful for identifying the things that you as an investor should be paying attention to. I've got I've got one too that I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, Ben Thompson Stratechery mm -hmm. yeah is a great is a great read um, Ben also is a great Twitter follow has uh, sends a daily email so go to Stratechery go to his website and sign up for those daily emails because you get really good stories right really good storyteller and also some really in depth explanations of a lot of things that are going on that are driving these companies and the decisions that they're making. And he also interviews a lot of people that he argues with and disagrees with. And that's, and that's uh, that is so helpful. It is so incredibly helpful. So I would, I would put Ben Thompson up there uh, with Jim and ball too. Well, I, I think that's a pretty good starter kit right there, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> I think so the, uh, the final question we're going to hit today, uh, this one comes from Steven and it, and it takes us into the weeds pretty fast. Uh, hey, podcasters, uh, can we hear about your thoughts on payment for order flow and its impact on retail investors like us? I know payment for order flow shot up into the limelight during the GameStop super short squeeze at the beginning of the year. I feel like it is a contentious black box. On one hand, PFOF, payment for order flow, uh, introduces or could introduce a conflict of interest because brokers are rewarded by the market maker when they send trades over. On the other hand, uh, they are always submitting trades for best execution. What's more, payment for order flow undoubtedly paved the way for brokerages to cut commissions to zero. I don't want commissions to come back, and I don't think I'm alone in saying that. Basically, this is a topic, Jason, that has uh, gone from being behind the scenes probably for the last couple of years in particular um, and growing in prominence to something that 
even the average investor is far more aware of and, and maybe knows the quick take on. Uh, before we get into our specific thoughts, uh, Stephen's question actually did a decent job framing up some of the elements of this, but I do want to just explore what happens when you make a trade, because I think we need, to under- we need to understand those gears turning before we understand some of the next level discussion here. Right. Well, no- nothing's free, right? So it's, it's how does this thing that's free to us to trade, how does it actually get paid for? Right. And, and it's fascinating, um, perhaps more than some people want to know, but it's, but it's worth exploring a little bit. Um, so, so when you buy or sell a stock in your online brokerage, it, it seems like your broker is making that happen when you hit buy or sell, right? It's, it's happening practically instantly. And as the user interface goes, you don't see what happens after you hit that button. It is very unlikely, not, not very unlikely, but it is unlikely that that broker is the one who's actually executing that order for you. Right, More they're like, facilitating it with somebody who's actually there's a market maker that's doing it. Right, odds are like there is not someone who is submitting the exact same order at the exact same time, um, and is there to be the buyer if you're the seller, or be the seller if you're the buyer. Right, and so they're looking for people that can help facilitate that and add liquidity to the market, and that is where these market makers come in. These are firms that fulfill orders. And really, I mean, that's that's a huge chunk of what they do. They facilitate tra- transactions. They create a fluid market. Um, and they're willing to do this, Jason, because they collect a small spread on what sellers are willing to sell the stock for at a given time and what buyers are willing to pay for it. And it is not a lot of money uh, for you know that individual spread. But over a large volume of transactions, it can become a lot of money. Right. Right. That's that's exactly the thing, right? It's It's... You take a very small shaving of millions of trades, and you end up with enough money to make it worth doing. Yeah. And so that is basically their payment for assuming the risk that there may or may not be someone that they can then move those shares over to. Generally, especially for small retail orders and for highly traded names that have a lot of volume, they're going to be able to find it pretty easily and by the end of the day, wipe everything out that they need to. Um so they're happy to do all of this, and it's relatively easy money for them, particularly in the retail zone, because the orders are not market moving orders too often. Um, and it's a good business for them. And so they are happy to pay brokers a portion of that spread. And I think the easiest way, Jason, to think about that is it's a rebate that essentially comes back to the brokers for passing that trade along to the market makers. And aggregated over the course of all of the trades, over the course of days, weeks, months, years, uh, it becomes very big. And so in 2020, TD Ameritrade, Robinhood, E-Trade, Charles Schwab collected an estimated $2.5 billion in payment for order flow, a number that tripled from 2019. So we saw a huge surge in retail interest. Unsurprisingly, we saw a huge surge in payment for order flow. Uh, and from Robinhood's S1, just to help paint a picture, for the year ended 2020, Revenue derived from payment for order flow and transaction rebates represented 75% of our total revenues. So this shows you where the money's coming from and exactly how big that pie is. I think it's interesting too, and I want to just I want to hit that again, right? Robinhood has kind of been made out to be the bad guy here, because um, if you go back to the AMC, GameStop, all of you know everything that happened earlier this year with the short squeeze, it was right in the middle of it. There have been some documents that have come out that have kind of corroborated. Maybe there were some not customer-friendly things that were happening, but TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, Schwab, Robinhood's not the only broker that's doing that's doing this. Yeah. It's it's an industry-wide practice, right? It's, it's just, it's part of the game. Um, and I think the critics would say 
these payments, like a lot of financial incentives, have the potential to warp the incentives of the brokerages, tempting them to route orders to the market makers that offer the best rebates, um, while also satisfying their their need to offer kind of the best price um, to you know their their customers, um, because there's some wiggle room in exactly the way that that's defined, um, and maybe not offering buyers and sellers the best prices for their securities that they could possibly get on the market. Right, right. But again, the idea here is that in a perfect no perfect environment where there's no conflicts of interest, we're talking about fractions of a percentage each way for the buyer and the seller that the volume is where they make the money. So it's not like as a seller, you're losing 5% or as a buyer, you're paying 5% more. We're talking fractions of a percent. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll add one one kind of further criticism is that by having the window into the trades, uh, organizations could theoretically front run retail investors and pocket very easy money. Right, right. the the big The big thing here is it's just a reminder. I think to to me, obviously with this with pay for order flow, when there's a disalign a disalignment of incentives, right? When the 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 organization that's paying for the order flow also has a large financial interest in some of the companies that might be having high volume that could be detrimental to whatever their interest is, whether it's long or short, you have a conflict of interest, right? And that's when things get go sideways and all of a sudden it's not a great deal for the retail investor and could actually be harmful if they decide, hey, we're not going to take this order flow right now. All of a sudden, the liquidity that they were providing goes away. Right. And and liquidity is important for the market. It's important for buyers and sellers. We we need it in order to have a thriving market. Um, I, I do want to offer the other side of this, the the pro argument, and I'm going to quote this from the A16Z blog from Anderson Horowitz. Uh, when things go according to plan, market makers receive more and more orders and can often trade inside the published bid-ask spread, actually improving the price you receive compared to the best quoted price on any exchange. Filling your market buy order for Facebook at 26. Uh, well, he gets into specific numbers here. But the point is, uh, basically, there are other fees associated with working specifically with the exchange. And also, by the volume that they operate on, they may be able to offer better price dynamics to customers than the exchanges can. And so, I don't want that to get lost here. I, but I think to, to kind of bring it back out of the guts of this, Jason, the, the unfortunate reality is you, you have to pay for services somehow. It's, it's kind of whether it's happening explicitly or where it's potentially happening uh, as this baked in way that you don't quite see. Right. These companies have a right to make a profit, you know, and if this is the model that they've chosen to do it, that creates a, an opportunity for us as retail investors to reduce our exp expenses, our direct expenses, that's fantastic. But just like with any other investment process, this is one that saves you investing fees the companies that you invest in, it's important to understand their financial incentives, right? We think about everything that's going on with Facebook right now. And the bottom line is that the users are the the product, right? The customers are the advertisers. So there's a disalignment of incentives that's really at the core of everything that Facebook is, you know, being accused of right now. When you when you have if you understand those sorts of things about your businesses, you don't get sideswiped right? When things don't go according to how you expect it. So I think one of the most important things to me that this is a takeaway is understand alignment of incentives, whether it's the companies that you invest through, that you invest with, that you work with, that you work for, and you're less likely to get caught unawares.
Yeah, and, and I think to to bring it around to how it impacts the retail investor, you know, if if you're paying seven dollars, uh, you know, per trade as a kind of classic commission, um, the the incremental cost that may be passed on to you through any misalignment with payment for order flow, y- you're probably still coming out positive on that if you're a small time investor. If you're if you're working in a lot of shares, it the numbers might change a little bit, but you also might be someone who would have been trading commission free anyways. So, you know, it's it's kind of hard to triangulate what the exact impact is on the average person here. I think um broadly we are in a period where it is about as good as it's ever been for being an individual investor and participating in the financial system. 100%, right? So even this flawed system, system that that has things about it that can be flawed, I think you're right Dylan is probably about as optimal as it gets. And the more transparent it becomes, the 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 less likelihood of those disalignment of incentives becoming a problem for investors. I like that. I think takeaways from this episode are borrow people's brains, focus on the incentives, Jason. <laughs> we can't say much more than that, Dylan. <laughs> uh, I'm always happy to borrow your brain. Thank you for joining me on today's show. Yeah, it's good. Sometimes it gets dark and weird in there. So <laughs> it's a Friday though, so we 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 kept it good. Dylan, I love I love doing this with you. It's a lot of fun. Nice to keep it light. Uh, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks, for, thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. 